If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When we first began observing the Lord's table together as a church, I I preached a sermon that day uh, to speak of the the meaning and the significance of the Lord's table. And every week since then, we've been observing the Lord's table and And every week I seek to remind us of just a few things before we partake of it together. But I haven't done a full sermon on that topic since that first Sunday. And I do think it is good to remind ourselves every now and again in a deeper and a fuller way than we do each and every week. And since here we are in the midst of uh, of things and just the events and the flow of time, we're in between series, we're coming up on the holidays, and it's good for us to stop and to reflect upon the significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ when God became a man. And so this seems as like a good time for us again to pause for a moment and reflect upon what it is and what it means when we partake of the Lord's table together. (coughs) The passage we're going to examine today is often not really a, a typical Lord's table type passage. Even though the Lord's table is mentioned in this passage and is referenced, it's, it's really not the main point of what Paul is, is seeking to get at within the passage. But what Paul is doing, he is using truth that exists about the Lord's table and using that to illustrate a point that he is making about the concept of idolatry. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to identify the truth that, that Paul is teaching us about the Lord's table so, we, so that it can enrich our understanding of the Lord's table and then see how Paul takes that information and applies it to life. <clears throat> there are many uh, misconceptions about the concept of what it is That happens when we come together and observe the Lord's table. Different traditions in different sectors of of Christianity and in in different uh, religions. I would identify the Roman Catholic Church as a different religion. Uh, But they have a particular understanding of what happens at the Lord's table. They they, they would believe that uh, that there is a, a transformation, a literal physical transformation that occurs with the elements, with the, with the bread and with the juice that, or the wine and, the, and for, with the Catholics that, as they observe it, that it literally transforms and becomes the body and the blood of Christ. It's known as transubstantiation, and we don't, we don't find that to be a biblical teaching. Others believe that we're spiritually teleported in a mystical way up to heaven and we dine with Christ in a mystical, spiritual way. And again, I don't think that's something that the biblical text leads us to conclude. But there are others who would seek to go so far, the pendulum swings so far the other direction, away from mystical and spiritual things to just say, this is, this is nothing more than a memorial, like a monument in a park And I think if we're thinking rightly about the Lord's table, I do think there's a little bit more going on than simply just a bare memorial like we would observe a memorial in a park. There's there's more significance to it than that, and I think this text bears that out. So we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've just got a little bit of a frog in my throat right now. I'm trying to clear out, and it is not wanting to go away. First Corinthians chapter 10, and 
you know, as we're about to get into this passage, you know, this is one of those passages where we really have to understand some context to get a good handle on the context. I don't know if there's ever been maybe a statement that you have heard or, or you, heard, you heard a quote from something and it's just like, you're, what in the world? What, what is that? And then when you understand the context, you say, oh, okay, I see, I see what you're trying to communicate there with that statement. Well, I would say that there's, there's something similar to a small degree uh, going on with this passage. It, it, it's helpful for us to understand the broader context to help us understand what Paul is getting at with the text we're about to study. The book of 1 Corinthians overall was written to what we would say is probably a rather immature church. There were various issues within the church, and including just amounts of division and sin that would blow our minds to really dive into the depths of what was going on within that church. So Paul wrote to confront the sin, but, but this was also a church that had questions. And so they actually had written a letter to Paul asking, hey, what about this? What about that? Hey, there's this going on. What do you think about this? And so Paul in 1 Corinthians is writing to answer those questions. One of the questions that the church had asked was what to do about meat sacrificed to idols. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? In those days, there were uh, pagan temples where all kinds of immorality would go on. Uh, Immorality took place in the name of worship of these false gods, and often there was meat that was sacrificed to the false gods in the altar there in, in the false god's temple, and then that meat would then be taken and sold in the marketplace. And so there were some believers that felt that, you know, these these uh, this meat was sacrificed to unbelievers or to uh, to false gods. It was, it was sacrificed by unbelievers to false gods. Therefore, we should not buy that meat in the marketplace. We shouldn't eat that meat because it was sacrificed to a false god. There were others. Who, who believe that, you know what, that, that false idol, that's not really a real God at all. It's just a stone or a wooden statue. There's no reality in the midst of that. And so this meat is being sold in the marketplace. It's perfectly good meat. Hey, why not? Let's, let's buy it and eat it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just meat. There's, there's nothing that it changes about the substance of the meat itself just because it was sacrificed to a stone pillar of some kind. And so there was, there was difference of opinion on this point. Well, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that it actually is perfectly fine to eat the meat. It's just meat. It's just, it's just food, right? There's nothing inherently different or changed about the meat itself. We know that there is only one God, so therefore we can eat the meat freely. However, he also notes that some people, and this is the language he used, not all have this knowledge. Not everyone thinks this way. And so if their conscience is bothered by knowing that meat was sacrificed to the idols, it would be better not to eat of it for the sake of their brother's conscience. And then in chapter 9, Paul goes on to illustrate the concept of, you know, sometimes we think about liberty and our Christian liberty. And it's like, oh, these are my rights. This is my, this is my Christian liberty. I can do this and no one can take it away from me. And we, and we think of it as so individualistically and so selfishly. But what Paul illustrates in chapter 9 is that our liberty exists for the sake of giving it up. Sure, you're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You are free to do that. But you're also free 
to abstain if it's going to lead another brother or sister into sin. And so he talks about how there's freedom to abstain from things that you are ordinarily free to do for the sake of the conscience of others. And he uses himself as an illustration when he starts talking about the concepts of, hey, I have the right to be paid for my ministry, and yet I forego that right. I I gave that right up for the sake of the ministry. And he illustrates it in that way. Well, as we come into chapter 10, the topic shifts just a little bit. There's the question, okay, there's, it's one thing to eat meat sacrificed to the idol and to, to buy that in the marketplace. Well, hey, if it's just meat sacrificed to the idol, it, it, there's nothing inherently different about the meat. If that's okay, well, then hey, is it okay to go into the pagan temple itself and to participate into the pagan feast and consume the meat there because, hey, it's just food, it's just meat. And this is where Paul has an issue with this practice. Buying meat in the marketplace, that's one thing. Going into the temple and participating in the feast, that is quite another. And so he enters chapter 10 by speaking about the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Though God was giving them food to eat and and water to drink and doing great miracles for them, and and they had this pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud to lead the way, they had the Shekinah glory in their midst in the tabernacle as it was right there in front of them. And yet, it says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? Why was he not pleased with them? He goes on to explain in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might desire evil as they did. He says, I'm about to explain what was going on with the Israelites. This is an example for us. Okay? Verses 7 through 11. This is how they were negative examples. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And in that context, that terminology of eating and drinking and rising up to play, that speaks of of immoral activity, of false worship to a false god. Verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. The people of Israel, they engaged in idolatry. This is why it says with most of them God was not pleased. They engaged in idolatry. They engaged in sexual immorality. They complained and they grumbled against the Lord and His provision for them and God judged them for it. So we have the somber warning of verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we can be so tempted. We hear what the Israelites were doing, like, oh, man, those 
How, how dense can these Israelites be, right? They had the Shekinah glory right there in front of them. They saw the pillar of cloud. They saw the pillar of fire. And yet they still go off into this immorality. How stupid are they? But losers. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Paul says, not so fast. You really think that there's something special about you or your DNA that that makes you some kind of superhuman, immune to temptation and immune to the same things that that the people of Israel were tempted by? No. Think again. If anyone thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. The moment that we think that we're strong, the moment that we think that we've got life figured out, the moment that we think that that we're impervious to these false ideas and these temptations that are in the world around us, it's a very dangerous place to stand. Take heed lest you fall. But lest we get too discouraged, Paul gives us the encouraging words of verse 13. He says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. You're not alone in whatever temptation and trial you're facing right now. This is something that has occurred to people before. But God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this is truly great news in the midst of all of this. When we think of of all the the seriousness that was going on with the people of Israel and and the danger that they were in because of their immorality and their their false belief and their actions against the Lord and their rebellion against Him and and how we must take heed to that and, and not fall into the same patterns of unbelief. And God says, I'm faithful. I'm not going to allow you to, have, to face some level of temptation that's impossible for you to overcome. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's always a way of escape. You're not the only one to struggle with your struggles. You're not the only one to face the temptations that you face. And there's nothing unique about it. Common struggles, but with the struggle... There's always a way of escape. We do not have to succumb to sin. It's not inevitable that we fall into sin. There's always a way out. So Paul sets that up as as a backdrop for this paragraph that we're going to study in depth today, these verses 14 and following. He sets that up to, to make this statement in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He says, God is faithful. There's always a way of escape. So take it. Run away. Flee from idolatry. Flee from the sin that would so easily entangle you. Discover the way of escape and pursue it. I think of the concept of of fleeing. You know, I remember one time when I was a child, I was outside playing in a field at my grandparents' house. They had this, this big field out behind where uh, there were different hay bales, those big rolls of, of hay bales, you know, and I would climb up on those and, and play around. Well, I was out in that field one day, and um, I saw that there was this dog that was starting to run towards me out in the field. And I was, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I, I was just a little kid, and that, that was a big dog. 
And let me tell you, I was scared. (laughs) I turned around and I booked it absolutely as fast as my two little legs would carry me away from that dog to try to get away. Now, that dog was a friendly dog, and it was a nice dog, and I found that out later on, but I didn't know that in the moments. I just knew that there was this dog that was running towards me, and I was literally running for my scared little life. Even though that dog ended up being a friendly dog, I think the concept of of fleeing for your life, that's the way we ought to be viewing the temptations that we face in this life. We need to flee. We need to run. That word for flee, flee from immorality, that word for flee is used in different places in Scripture. It's used to speak of Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt with Jesus to avoid the wrath of Herod. It's used in Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts when Stephen is preaching about how Moses fled from Egypt to go to Midian because he had killed an Egyptian guard. The word is used in other contexts about how the believer should be thinking about temptation and sin. It's run away as fast as you can. Get away from it. Don't linger. Get out of Dodge. Whatever the temptation is, whatever it is you need to do, no matter how foolish you may look in the process, get out. He says, I speak as the sensible people. He's like, this is... This is kind of common sense things, right? You're facing temptation. Remove yourself from the temptation. And then he goes on to give additional reasoning. And it is in this reasoning that we find our principles today about the Lord's table. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation In the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Of course, Paul is asking a rhetorical question. The assumed answer to the question that he's asking is, yes, the cup of blessing that we bless, it is participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, it is a participation in the body of Christ. Liz, you're going to have to advance the slides. Verse 16 starts with the words, the cup of blessing that we bless. In some translations rendered as the the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. That's the idea of what's there. Paul says we bless the cup, we give thanks for it. And, And as we observe this together, he says we are participants in Christ. And likewise the bread, participants in the body of Christ. Well, that word for participation speaks of, it's, it's the word koinonia. If that's a Greek word you've heard before, it's, we use it, it's, it's used more commonly sometimes than some other Greek words, but it speaks of fellowship or sharing with one another. A, a common, more than just a common experience, but a common sharing in an activity in the same things together speaks of a close involvement with each other. It's not just like a loose connection, but rather an intimate bond with one another. 
You know, whenever I would go to a, a, a Cubs baseball game growing up, we would always get there and, you know, you're there and it's, Wrigley Field is always packed and there's all these fans, all these people enjoying the baseball game together when something good would happen for the Cubs, which did happen from time to time, I'll have you know. <laughs> but when something good would happen, the whole crowd, it was wild, right? They're cheering, everywhere. you're giving high fives, people are hugging each other and they're strangers to each other, right? Like they don't know each other. But they're united together around a common experience, around a a common cause, a a common desire with one another, and they're rejoicing with one another about a particular thing. But really, that's actually kind of a superficial kind of fellowship, right? I'm going to leave that stadium. I am never going to see those same people again in the, the rest of my life, more than likely. These are individuals that I may be so completely on the opposite end of every spectrum, of every ideology, of every opinion that you can imagine. But in that moment, hey, we're, we're celebrating the Cubs together, right? We're having a, a good time at a baseball game. But that fellowship is superficial. The word koinonia speaks to something deeper than even that. There's a reason that sometimes the word is used to describe the Lord's table as communion. Communing with one another, communing with our Lord, fellowshipping with Him as we give thanks to Him for His sacrifice. We're to be calling our hearts and our mind to reflect upon what Christ has done. As He said, do this in remembrance of Me. We're to look unto our Savior, the author, the finisher of our faith. We're to be setting our eyes on Jesus, the one who will one day come and return to call His children home. And what's more is that we are identifying ourselves with His death. When we partake of this together, we fellowship with him, we identify with his life and with his death. The blood that was poured out for us, the body that was broken for us, we become participants in the the blood and the body of Christ. We identify ourselves with his death. Every time we partake, we acknowledge that what happened to Jesus on the cross is what should have happened to me. That should have been my blood poured out. That should have been my side that was pierced. I should have been the one to have those thorns digging into my skull on my head. That my beard ripped out. It should have been me. I should have endured the wrath of God. But because Christ did so on my account, because Christ died in my place, I don't have to. I don't have to experience that. But rather, I can die to my sin and live unto God. And as we partake of the Lord's table together, we are participants, we are fellowshippers in the body, in the blood of Christ, identifying with His death. The Lord's table is participation in Christ. This fellowship is not only with Christ, but it is also with one another. 
We fellowship when, when we all take part of this memorial together as we remember what Christ did for each of us individually, but for us also collectively. The communion is not just a vertical communion with our God, it is also a horizontal communion with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's table unites us together in Christ. Again, when we partake of the Lord's table, we are not only communing with our Savior and thanking Him for, our, for His sacrifice, but we are also communing with our fellow brothers and sisters. As those who have been adopted into the family of God, for anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes we act like it too, right? We can bicker and we can squabble. We can jockey for position, influence, and control just like siblings can with our natural families. But when we gather around the Lord's table, there's something special that takes place here. Though we are many individuals, each with different backgrounds, different struggles, different joys, different challenges, different hopes, different fears, different aspirations, when we come to the Lord's table, we are one in Christ, united by our faith in Jesus Christ. And we all partake of the one bread. You know, when we are observing the Lord's table, you know, we have our Little pieces of cracker, they're individually packaged, right? In our little cups, they're individual little cups, right? In, in the original Lord's Supper, as they're observing the Passover Seder together, it's, it's not like that, right? It's, they, have a, they have bread, and they're breaking it off to give to one another. And, and so sometimes I think we may lose a little bit of that symbolism by doing it in these individual baggies. It's for sanitary purposes, so we, we embrace that reality, But we shouldn't miss the reality that though as it's before us, it's already individually packaged, all those pieces were originally part of one loaf, one piece of unleavened bread. The juice in those cups was at one point all in one pot before it was individually poured out into those portions. So when we partake together, We are all affirming, or should be all affirming, the same gospel. That Christ died for me, and Christ died for you. Just as my sin is forgiven, so your sin is forgiven. Not because we're partaking of these elements together, but because we have a shared belief in what these elements represent of what these elements are designed to make us look towards because of what Jesus did on that cross. I used the illustration earlier about the baseball game and being united with complete strangers for the purpose of watching that game. Well, there's a uniting going on at the Lord's table that goes far deeper than baseball fandom. Our fellowship goes beyond just a mere memorial observance. But in this moment, we are uniquely recognizing who we are as a body in Christ. 
This is not merely to be just an individual thing that we just do with ourselves and with Jesus and it's just, it's just us in our little moments, isolated by ourselves. It's not supposed to be that. We're recognizing one another as fellow partakers in Christ, fellow participants in the gospel, fellow recipients of the grace of God. Not again because of the elements, but because of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I ask, should this affect how we view one another within the body of Christ? Yeah, it absolutely should. I hope that that as we consider the reality that we're being united in the same gospel together, as we partake of this together, affirming the same gospel that Christ died on the cross for our sins and anyone who believes in Him and Him alone has eternal life. We're affirming that together. You're my brother. You're my sister. That absolutely should change how we view one another. We shouldn't just be individuals that that come to church, we do our thing, and then we we go our separate ways like ships passing in the night. No, we should have a vested interest in one another. We should, have a, we should see our obligation to disciple one another, to sharpen one another, to stir one another up, to love and good deeds. Why? Because we, though being many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's table should be a time of unity within the body of Christ with one another. The Lord's table unites us in Christ. Finally, when we reflect on that reality and how it should affect how we live out our lives, the Lord's table should change how we live. Look at verses 18 through 22. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I set the context earlier about meat sacrificed to idols. Paul made the point, hey, it's just meat. These idols aren't anything. So if you go into the marketplace and you purchase that feet, hey, uh, meat, it's free game. You can eat it. It's, it's fine. It's not, there's not anything wrong with that. But here the focus is a little bit different. It seems that some of the Corinthians thought that, hey, since it's just meat, since it's not a real idol, I have liberty in Christ to not only buy meat from the marketplace, but also to attend the festivals at the temple and participate in the feasts in the pagan temple. Because, hey, it's just food, right? It's just meat. The idol isn't real. 
Paul here makes a distinction between the meat that's out in the marketplace and engaging in the feasts in the pagan temples. So he warns them. This is his his warning about fleeing idolatry. This is what he's talking about. Of course, the food offered to the idols and even the idols themselves aren't really anything. He says, what do I imply? That, That these things are anything? No, they're not anything. We know that. We know that's true. But there are spiritual forces of darkness at play. And when you go into the pagan temple to participate in their feast, at that point, it is not just meat. You are participating with the demonic realm. That, that command at the beginning of the paragraph takes new weight when you put it in those terms. Flee idolatry. Flee participation with the demonic realm. Because it's ultimately, it's not just sin. It's not just rebellion against God, but it's literally fellowshipping with demons. And Paul says, you can't do both. You can't, on one hand, sit down at the table to commune with Christ and thank Him for His sacrifice, and then, at the same time, go and sit down with demons. You must leave one table to go to the other. Verse 22 is a somber warning. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? We saw what what the Lord did with the Israelites who were in rebellion. And how so many perished because of their rebellion. Later in chapter 11, when Paul is speaking about the Lord's table, he's he's going to go on to say how some people were partaking in an unworthy manner, and he says that this is why some of you are weak or ill, and some have even died. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, he goes on to say, is to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is a serious thing. The Lord's table is a serious thing. Idolatry is a serious thing. Now, here we are in the year 2022. Last time I checked, we don't have a temple to Poseidon or Aphrodite hanging around Jeffersonville or New Albany, unless it's there somewhere that I just don't know about, which I suppose is possible, but it's not part of our cultural phenomenon that we just have these pagan temples. So does that mean that this passage is not applicable to us? No, I believe it is just as applicable as ever. Idolatry may look different for us, and it may not involve us attending pagan festivals but we can still be just as guilty of it as ever. There's just a few passages I'm just going to reference, and you may, you may want to jot these references down. We're not going to hang out in them for very long, but different passages that speak about different forms of idolatry. Paul, cause, Paul calls covetousness idolatry in Ephesians 5.5 5, and Colossians 3.5. He speaks of covetousness, desiring that which is not your own, He says that is idolatry. 
Paul says that some people have made gods out of their bellies in Philippians 3.19. In 1 Samuel 15.23, the prophet Samuel equates rebellion against the Lord as idolatry because in rebellion we reject the word of the Lord, therefore making ourselves supreme. It's idolatry. Job chapter 31 Verses 24 and 28, that passage doesn't use the word idolatry itself, but the concept is certainly there. Job speaks about trusting in gold or riches or looking unto the created realm without considering the Lord, that if he were to do those things, that would be iniquity that ought to be punished. Why? He says this, for I would have been false to God above. Trusting in the created realm, looking at the things around him and not giving heed unto the Lord. It's being false to God. Idolatry can take so many forms. And we, when we engage in that, we are forsaking our Lord. We leave the fellowship of the table of Christ to fellowship with demons. It's a serious thing. And each of us, we have different things that, that we're tempted by, different things that we are tempted to. But if we think about it in this way, if we're to, if we're to just dwell upon this for a moment, that, that really changes our relationship to that temptation. And the next time we're tempted to view pornography or to overindulge in food or to lust after money or the belongings of others, if we just ask ourselves, do I really want to be a participant with demons? Because that's what idolatry is. John Chrysostom, a pastor from the 4th century, he's considered one of the Church fathers, he paraphrased this passage and how Paul is, is making his argument. He wrote this, and uh, the quote is going to be up on the screen for us. How then are you not acting inconsistently? Blessing God for delivering you from idols and yet running again to their tables. How can we praise God for, for saving us from our sin on Sunday as we partake of the Lord's table? Thank you, Lord, for this sacrifice. Thank you for the death of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you have cleansed me from the sins of, of pornography or greed or pride. But then we engage in those same sins throughout the rest of the week, throwing fits when someone cuts us off or has the audacity to get our order wrong or accidentally overcharge us for something. We're viewing inappropriate things on our devices. We're inconsistent. Blessing God for delivering us from these things and yet running again to those tables. Paul says you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't sit at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It doesn't work. This is why we pause before we take the Lord's table for a time. We, we encourage that moment of silent prayer and reflection. If there's sin in your life that needs to be dealt with, if there's things that need to be addressed, this is why we have that moment to give us the opportunity to go to the Lord, to confess our sin before Him, 
to repent and come before Him. Now, I recognize that in many ways this is, this is a heavy teaching. This is a weighty thing. And it should be sobering to us. But I don't want to end things on a, on a depressing note overall. Because we must not forget how Paul got us to this place in this letter. The paragraph ends right before this paragraph, leading into this paragraph. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says, yes, it's true. You can't sit at both tables. It's a serious business to sit at the table with demons. But the same God who makes it clear that we can't sit at both tables, He has opened the door wide open for us, cleared the way that we may sit at the table with Christ, that we may commune with Christ, that we may have fellowship with Jesus Christ. He has made that way for us. So come to the table. Come and rejoice. Reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ. Rejoice in His salvation. Praise God for His death of Christ on the cross, which our sins of idolatry are forgiven. Thank Him for His goodness. Thank Him for providing the way of escape in every temptation. And encourage one another that this is true for all who believe in Christ. And then go forth in Christ and seek to live by the power of the Spirit, a life of consistency with the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table should change how we live. If you are here today and you're reflecting in your own heart that maybe my own life is not consistent with the Lord's table today, Maybe you've been dining at other tables. I encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer. Seek His forgiveness. Ask Him to strengthen you. Ask Him to give you the grace to live consistently with the fellowship that we claim to have in Christ. He has made the way open for that to occur. If you're hearing my voice and you're not sure that you have trusted in Christ, you see the inconsistency within your life and it's because you do not have a new life in Christ. Now is the time to change that. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait another moment. Go to the Lord in prayer. Confess your sin to Him. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's you. And he died, he was buried, and he rose again to new life. That even as Jesus Christ was raised to life, so too we might walk in newness of life. Place your complete trust in him and him alone for your salvation today. In a moment, we're going to close with a song. A song that calls us to reflect upon the Lord's table and the significance that is contained therein. 
But before we do that, I'm, just, I'm going to give us time within our own hearts even now to go to the Lord. If there's anything within our lives that need to be addressed, to do that. If you've never trusted Christ, to do that. But even as we go that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up my guitar and I'm going to play a few chords and so there will be a little bit of music just strumming as we go through that. And, but it's still the opportunity for you to be reflecting and praying. And then I will pray vocally, out loud, and conclude our time, and then we'll sing our song together. But go to Him in prayer now. If you have sin to confess, confess it. And then praise Him. Thank Him. Rejoice in the forgiveness that is in Christ. And ask Him to help you find the way of escape in every temptation. Let's pray now. Lord, I do thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. I thank you that as we gather together, as we observe your table, as you have commanded us, as we remember what Christ did for us, that we have the opportunity to fellowship with Christ. We fellowship with Christ and we fellowship with one another, our brothers and sisters who affirm the same gospel have the same Spirit dwelling within them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives of consistency with the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that there is forgiveness in Christ for even when we do not live consistently with the gospel, even when we live inconsistent lives with the Lord's table, there is forgiveness in Christ. I pray that we would always seek to go before you bringing ourselves before you in confession of sin, but rejoicing and resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the grace that we have through Him. Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would honor and glorify you as we remember Christ's sacrifice and then as we partake of your table together and enjoy our fellowship meal together, that it would bring honor and glory to you as we engage one another. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.